listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for next-generation media companies. The Paladin platform automates mission-critical functions, from creator management and payments to business intelligence and campaigns. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jason Peterson, chairman of Go Digital Media Group. Jason, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Very excited to dive into this stuff. You started Go Digital in 2008 after graduating USC Film Business School and then going to Pepperdine for law school. Correct. Tell us about those formative years and your first uh, experience in the business. My original idea for the company came earlier when I was in business school at USC and I had forecast this paradigm shift from a physical goods experience like CDs and DVDs to a digital goods experience pre-iTunes. I didn't know what to do about it, so I sat on it. And then in watching the development of the industry and going to law school, the light bulb went off in uh, the late 2005, early 2006 timeframe that digital was here and there were a lot of opportunities. The Genesis of the business was actually in the music industry. We were looking at how major acts, Switchfoot's a great example, because I used to produce music videos and did a lot of work with them. Acts that were double or triple platinum were getting dropped left and right by their labels. And we thought, well, maybe there's a way we can redefine the label artist distributor relationship and, and, and do something different in the digital age. And I was fortunate enough to be connected with a very well-known rapper and entrepreneur named Master P who had some similar ideas of his own. He controlled his catalog and uh, basically took a risk on me. And was that unique at the time for him to own his catalog? I think that he was in a fairly unique set of circumstances. He had been the consummate independent in the late 90s and uh, had struck pressing a distribution deal with Priority, which was part of EMI, and uh, really retained a lot of his own control, which is which is fairly unusual, especially, I think, in... in uh, in that segment of the music industry. But nonetheless, he, you know, he is a consummate entrepreneur and, and decided to give uh, a kid who was still in law school a chance and uh, got my foot in the door. We quickly realized that we were a little late to the party for digital aggregation. You know, there were other companies that uh, some aren't even around anymore. IOTA, Iris, DRA, they all have been gobbled up by the orchard. Ingroups was around as well. So we were a little late to that party, but it got our, our foot in the door in the industry. And as an attorney, I was looking at how user engagement was changing. Specifically, I was looking at YouTube because there was all this user-generated, user-uploaded activity. And, and when Google bought them, I made a phone call to... Uh, to YouTube and, and explained, I'm pretty sure that you guys have a huge vicarious copyright liability problem. You're going to need to clear all of this content that's being uploaded. Otherwise, it's just a huge cost center to you. You can't monetize it. DMCA says you cannot derive a direct financial benefit from any content that you don't have a license to. And they said, we know Google's serious about this. Why don't you help us clear the independent content? So you had relationships at YouTube from your time working in music videos, music industry? You know, I just basically cold called them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's been the story of my career. You know, I decided to do something and I just jump in the pool and learn to swim. Actually, funny enough, your client, George Strompolis in full screen, was the guy that did my deal uh-huh. or our deal sure. to leverage what I don't think it was even called content ID at the time. You know, it was just an idea on a sure. drawing board. We were the first guys in the door. 
doing that back in January 2007. And you're fresh out of law school. You didn't go work for a big firm. You didn't find yourself working at a big studio in the entertainment industry. I wasn't even out of law school yet. I was still in law school. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so the YouTube thing uh, got a lot of traction very quickly. And uh, we ended up rolling one thing out of the next over the ensuing years until today where, you know, essentially we kind of like how Jeff Bezos started Amazon doing one thing, right? He sold books online. Then he realized he had a store. He could sell anything. He could buy groceries, TVs, whatever you want, right? And then he had to build infrastructure to service millions of customers. Now he sells that, right? It's called the cloud. So over a period of time, we did something similar, albeit on a much smaller scale, where we would recognize pain point in the industry. Maybe we were already solving this pain point. For example, when we were uh, getting into the distribution business, we realized, well, how are you going to manage thousands of video assets, millions of sound recordings, distribute them to hundreds of business partners around the world who all want them, but have different technical requirements. And the answer is not with people and not with spreadsheets. So we built automation and that was the genesis of our content bridge business, which became the world's first cloud-based digital supply chain management platform. And uh, so we just kind of rolled one thing out of the next. And today we have four very vibrant business units in the group that do all manner of things in the media business. So I want to talk a little bit more about that before we get there. Have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? What sets you on this path? You know, I never formally considered myself an entrepreneur, I think, until I started Go Digital. But as a movie producer, my first career was basically producing movies. I thought I would be a director or a filmmaker going into college at USC. And I was in this joint business film program and uh, ended up meeting a lot of other guys who were very talented filmmakers and they had nobody to handle their business. So I became everybody's producer. And I think that Every movie really is a business, right? Every project is a business. It's a startup. Yeah, it's a startup. So I I don't think I thought of myself as an entrepreneur in the formal sense, but I was nonetheless doing entrepreneurial things. And then when I got into Go Digital and into the distribution and marketing side of things, I really uh, started to focus on being an entrepreneur and, and finding mentors and advisors who were entrepreneurs themselves. So yeah, it's just... uh it's been a, a path where doors have opened and I've taken them, but not necessarily foreseen them, if that makes sense. Sure. What were some of the biggest challenges when you were first starting out? Well, I think for any entrepreneur, uh, the number one challenge and the number one item they should pay attention to is timing, right? Every market has a life cycle. Every company has a life cycle. Every product has a life cycle. And being too early to a market is worse than being too late because there's no market. And I've always been a very early mover. So... Uh, we've definitely failed at a few things where we were just too early. There wasn't a market. And, what are some examples of that? Um, well, initially, our content bridge business, the, the digital supply chain management business, uh, which was fairly mature in the 07, 08 timeframe, you know, we, we, in the first year of our business, we put a lot of effort into building this thing. This was way before the public cloud could even support this kind of activity. We had to build and maintain our own private cloud. Right. And a lot of workflows were still very tape based. File based workflows were just starting to sort of become the norm, I guess you could say. So that was challenging in the early days. I imagine at that time, most big studios had on prem solutions, right? If you think about oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Warner Brothers, MGM, Disney, they were using SAP, probably custom implementations. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, this type of technology wasn't accessible to smaller Not at all. Owners. Not at all. It, you know, it took probably three or four years at least before we got major studio traction. 
so that, I think that's a, that's a tangible example. And, and, and is that kind of analogous to the, the typical model of disruption where you start with the unserved, underserved, offer them certain capabilities in this place, digital first in the cloud, and then start to build out more of the functionality that the bigger players needed? Yeah, I mean, we always try and do customer-driven product development, whether it's technology-based or not. You know, whatever the, the offer is, is we, we like to be very customer-driven. I think I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. Um, I've definitely built a few, uh, a few, they say churches for Easter Sunday, right? Where there really weren't a lot of people that were going to be there week in and week out. You know, I've also been late to markets. You know, when we started in pure digital music aggregation, we were three years too late to that market. IOTA and the Orchard already each had over a thousand label clients. So I've experienced in my career, I mean, I guess I've been technically an entrepreneur for 18 years now. Uh, I've experienced both ends of the market cycle. And so that's the number one thing that I counsel other, other entrepreneurs is you want to be in large and fast growing markets. It doesn't matter if you're the best in the world and you execute flawlessly. If you're in a small and shrinking market, it's going to be really, really hard. You know, right now, for example, our group has a very strong focus on the music sector. We have a, a very fast growing Music distributor, label, and publisher group structured the same as Sony Universal. It's called Sync Music, C-I-N-Q. And we have a, uh, a multi-platform network that competes with Vivo for the Hispanic audience. It's called Vita Primo. And why such a focus on Hispanic audiences, Latin America, that segment? Well, in inventing, essentially, the uh, practice of clearing rights on YouTube, there was a very famous Latin recording artist named Daddy Yankee, who everybody knows from Despacito and, and his hit 10 years ago, Gasolina, who came to us and said, uh, I like what you're doing. I want to sign up. And in getting to know him and doing well by him, you know, he made a lot of introductions in space for us. Wow. How did he find you? Was uh, it a it relationship? Was, it was yeah, just through a chain of relationships, basically. And uh, we came to understand from a first party perspective just how popular the Latin space is. And as we looked into it more, we realized, well, there's roughly 650 million people in Latin America, something like 380 million of them speak Spanish. There's 57 million Hispanics in the United States growing 17% compound a year. It's going to be one third of our population in less than 20 years. You do the math. Uh, out. Do the math, yeah. right? It's a large and fast growing market. And further, all the other leading indicators are very positive. So traditionally... You have countries south of the U.S. border were considered third world. They, the consumer population was uh, didn't have a lot of spending power. Uh, 60 to 70 percent were unbanked. They had no debit or credit card access. They can't, couldn't buy goods online. Um, maybe didn't even have good broadband Internet access. That's all changing, right? We've got pervasive 4G penetration. They skipped the wired phase, went straight to wireless, right? Everybody's got an Android smartphone, Um People are signing up for bank accounts, debit cards, credit cards in large numbers. So it's literally the perfect storm. And so when we realized this, we went headfirst into, into Latin content, Latin and Hispanic audience, essentially. And it's been great. It's been a really, really good move for us. How's your Spanish? My Espanol is no bueno. <laughs> it's actually my number one. I have a lot of hobbies. It's the number one thing I want to learn in 2018. Okay. Uh, Sounds like a good resolution. Yeah, 2017, and you know, I picked up scuba diving and a few other things, but this year in Spanish. Okay, I like it. So we talked about launching Go Digital. You touched on you know the Grammy award-winning record label Sync. You talked about Vita Primo competing with Vivo. Vivo is kind of going through some turbulent times right now. Just dismissed a CEO. 
you see Vivo stepping up to the plate. What do you think of their future? Well, I mean, Vivo is the you know the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Um, we actually have a co-op relationship with them. Um, we help them program all of their uh, trap and Latin urban uh, content, which is a relatively new thing. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what they've done. In fact, one of my mentors, who used to be a senior exec at Universal Music Group, was part of the team that decided to found Vivo. You know, I think they had some really, they had a grand vision for this, right? And they felt that Vivo would be worth more potentially than the music company at some point. And I think there's still some challenges ahead for everybody in the space, ourselves included, right? You know, you've got the uh, issues of internet neutrality on the table right now. You've got the business issues around the resegmentation of the pay TV business. Pay TV is massive. It's $287 billion a year globally. All right, music at its height was 39 and a half. It's about 17 billion today globally, recorded music. Pay TV, 287 billion. So this is an absolutely huge industry that is going through this OTT, uh, you know, sort of internet delivery resegmentation. And you've got these virtual MVPDs popping up with the skinny bundles. Yeah, and, you know, Sling and all these guys and Sony and so on and so forth. There's a lot of transformation happening here. I think Vivo is very well positioned to realize a lot of value there. They're almost too big, which is the irony, you know, and they have this capital structure so that there's not antitrust concerns. They have a third party uh, shareholder. It's not a music company that's substantial, but, you know, they do like 24, 25 billion streams a month, something crazy. And so who's the acquirer for that? Right. So they they have some business issues because they're so big, but, you know, I have a lot of respect for what they've done. Mm -hmm. They've really, really done a good job driving traffic. Let's dig into the pay TV stuff a little bit more. Where do you see that going? Does all of this end up in consolidation among the major internet players or is there more government regulation that needs to be introduced? We're going to see multiple players in that space. What do you think? I always tell people, in my opinion, the elephant in the room is internet neutrality, right? And how the network is managed changes the business decisions for all the players in the value chain. In an internet neutral environment, you have companies like Verizon that spent 10 years and 30 billion to roll out Fios, right? So you get 100 megabit or faster internet to the home. Traditionally, they make a lot of their money and margin selling the triple play, right? Which includes the cable bundle. And when somebody else can deliver a competing offer that's a good substitute for that cable bundle without having to pay for the infrastructure, they can do it at a lower cost point. They don't have to amortize the $30 billion capital investment. So I think that it's a really challenging area to balance everybody's interests. You know, we, we made a threshold decision as a country back when we were building our telephone system, like over a hundred years ago, that we would use private investors money and private investors would be entitled to a return. I think, you know, that's as differentiated from some countries where it's a public utility paid for by the government. So I think because we made this threshold decision regarding private shareholders paying for this infrastructure, that we have to very carefully balance internet neutrality. I don't think it can be purely neutral without essentially being a taking and depriving investors of their property rights. But at the same time, it is like a public utility. And of course, freedom of speech is incredibly important. So how we balance that, I believe, is the single largest indicator or predictor of the outcome of this resegmentation of the pay television industry. That said, whoever owns the customer relationship is probably in the best position to win here. You know, I can see Amazon uh, providing essentially cable television through the prime 
bundle, Sorry. subscription, or right? a YouTube TV, you know, Amazon, um, Netflix. It's a great value proposition to the consumer. I also think that if the internet was entirely neutral, the network owners would sh- who still need to extract their share of the economic rent would shift the burden largely to consumers, right? We'd see lots of bucket pricing based on gigabytes used and all these other methodologies to extract more money from customers, from, from end users, regular people. Uh, if we can find a balanced approach, I think that that it'll be better for consumers and it'll be better for the players that want to deliver the content. Everybody will pay into the system. Uh, how we do that is is challenging. You know, one idea that I've had, and it's been used in other contexts, is to have a government body set some kind of a rate court, right, where there's a price per gigabyte paid by senders, for example. This is analogous to what happens with performing rights organizations in the music business or, you know, ASCAP, BMI, those kinds of of players or in mechanical reproduction rights in the music industry with uh, the companies that administer that like Harry Fox. So there's, there's a lot of complexity here, but I think this needs to get worked out and how internet neutrality is worked out will really indicate the way the pay TV business is going. How does that impact go digital? Well, it impacts us in a number of ways. A large segment of our business is B2B. So it's a little less sensitive to this, but Vita Primo is a multi-platform network. Right. So it's sensitive to reaching the consumer directly. If we have to pay for a fast lane or pay for a good user experience, right, that's relevant to us. We also want our customers to have a good experience. So so we're watching this very carefully in that regard. And, you know, in the music space, uh, as a rights holder, we want healthy music retailers, especially independent music retailers. Spotify is a great example. Right, companies that where music is their livelihood, not just a loss leader to win share of wallet or basket size. So a company like Spotify, who has filed to go public, right, they need to be able to make money. And if they have to pay a lot to reach the customer, it could be challenging. So that's why this such this is an area that needs to be so carefully balanced. If Spotify goes under, that impacts us as a rights holder. Is that a possibility? Or is Spotify too big to fail? I like to think they're too big to fail. Their gross margins aren't healthy, in my opinion. Uh, but we as a music industry recognize this. This is not Napster 2.0. You know, we've seen the guys that run all the major music companies and, and we're a Merlin member. Um, they've all renegotiated with Spotify to try and ensure that it can be a healthy business. And I think that's really smart. Everybody in the ecosystem needs to play the long game. Because if we all don't work together and, you know, every production, distribution, retail and exhibition, if we don't all work together and make streaming the massive success that it can be, there's not going to be an industry. Now, music industry revenues fall off a cliff like they did right. you know, several years ago. You know, and, and, and for the video industries, because people, especially the younger people, tend to watch their music, you know, it's very relevant to video as well, mm-hmm. right? We all need to work together. I mean, there's been this big... Uh, argument between content owners, you know, Bernie Azoff came out and other people, you know, upset about statements that Lee Cohen made at the end of last, at the end of 2017 about how much YouTube was paying rights holders. And I wrote a, I wrote a white paper that was published by 82AM on the subject. Uh, you know, we all need to work together on this because this is not a, we have to win, you have to lose situation. Everybody has to win. And I think there's, there's a, a place for Every business model, right? Different consumers have different utility. Different consumers have different uh, abilities to pay. And so in certain Latin American countries, ad supported makes a lot of sense. 
you don't have a large population that can pay. In other countries, uh, the value proposition is there and the ability to pay is there and, and the utility is there. So it makes sense to focus on the subscription play. So it's very nuanced, but I, I think that uh, we all need to work together. It's basically the theme. Yeah. So how do you figure out the appropriate model for price discrimination, right? Does it, is it vary country by country and you're, you're trying to decide between AVOD, SVOD, TVOD? Is there some sort of windowing component that still gets introduced? Well, here's what I would do. I would segment this question into two questions. Uh, what is the appropriate relationship between the retailer and the distributor of the content? And what is the appropriate relationship between the retailer and the customer? Right. And I would submit that content owners and distributors, by and large, there are some exceptions, but by and large, do not control the retailer or the user experience at retail, nor do they see the upside of that retailer's success. Right. We don't see we, you both of us were very involved in the development of the YouTube ecosystem, but we're not shareholders in YouTube. Right. We didn't see any any accretion in value to us as content owners and distributors because YouTube's been wildly successful as a platform and, and is a very substantial part of Google and Alphabet's market cap, right? And because we don't control the platform and we're not, generally speaking, seeing the fruits of success there, it's my position and my suggestion to the industry that content owners and distributors essentially set a wholesale rate to retailers, right? Everybody gets the same deal or close to the same deal, right? You're going to pay us a, you know, three, four, five, six dollar effective CPM for streaming. And what you do in your platform and how you make it successful is your business, right? From the very early days on YouTube, they said, look, we'll share watch page revenue with you, but homepage revenue, search page revenue, affiliate revenue, they keep 100% of that, right? And that's their prerogative. So if that's their prerogative and we're not going to participate in their accretion and enterprise value in any way, shape, or form, whether it's their stock market value or their other revenues, shouldn't this just be a wholesaler, retailer-type relationship where we shift the risk to them? It's a risk-reward ratio. We all know those who take the risks get the rewards. Those who take the risks also take the risk of failure. So why should content owners take the risk of failure without any of the rewards. That doesn't make any sense. So that's number one for me. And then as far as the customer relationship and price discrimination goes uh, between the retailer and the consumer, you know, there's data scientists and all these companies that deal with this. I think it's very nuanced, but I believe there is a place for ad support. There is a place for paid. I like what I see with a lot of the music platforms where if you're in that free ad supported tier, there's a, substantial curtailing of functionality, you know, for let's just say $5 US a month equivalent around the world. A lot of people could afford that. And the utility that everything ever made available on demand is huge. It's a no brainer. So if you, if you have these two value props where one is curtailed functionality, but it's free and the other has vast functionality and it's really a pretty modest price, I think we're going, to, we're going to see huge gains in subscribers and exactly what that price is by country or by, by, you know, audience slice, you know, I don't know, but uh, I'm certain there's a place for both ad supported and paid. So what's your take on YouTube music key, YouTube red? Uh, it's surprising to me that YouTube sits on top of the largest music library, right. largest content library in the world. And yet more people use Spotify or Apple music. 
you know, to me, I think it, it has to come down to user experience. Really? Your point is very well made. You would think with the number of active monthly users they have that there'd be a, you know, a much larger conversion rate. Uh, we'd be seeing a lot more growth there. And I think they'll get it right eventually. It's just, you know, it's user experience and it's, it's what the customers used to doing. You know, they've launched separate apps for different user experiences. I've heard different numbers, but you know, the average user of a smartphone doesn't use that many apps month to month actively, right? It's like 10, 12, 13 apps. So adding more apps to that stack, I don't know how effective that is. You know, for me, I have a small set of apps that have my mind share mm-hmm. and that's the battle that YouTube is waging. Yeah. They need to provide such a great user experience that they win the mind share of enough customers as opposed to their competition. <laughs> and I think that they'll get there. You know, obviously there's a lot of smart people that work there. It hasn't happened yet, really, in a, in a meaningful sense, but uh, I think with time. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's going to be a huge growth industry. We're going to see a lot of net new consumers coming into the paid streaming paradigm. And that's good for everybody. You touched on the convergence between music and video. I'm curious, do you think that started as far back as the 80s with MTV, or did that really happen at the dawn of YouTube and you know music content being accessible in a video format for people everywhere? That's a great question. I think that again, it comes back to consumer behavior. You know, the the real mind share of watching your music, I think, arrived with the younger generations. You know, younger millennials and and younger than that you know i when i travel i'll walk in there's subways everywhere right i'll walk into a subway or a 7-eleven and there's invariably some kids in there they're maybe 13 15 18 20 whatever and i'll ask them yeah hey you know like how do you guys get your content how do you listen to music and almost every time especially if i'm in a country outside the u.s maybe latin america asia they're like oh you know like we watch our music on youtube we get it on youtube some, sometimes it's we pirate it and we use different lockers and, and such, but uh, it's just a, it's a, it was a shift in consumer behavior that happened, I think, when devices started going into the hands of kids. That's my take on it. Yeah. Everyone has a computer in their pocket. Yeah. And this generation has grown up on the internet instead of television. Right. Yeah. It's a digital native behavior. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And it's not going back. No. It's crazy. No. I don't know. So what does the future hold for you and for Go Digital? Well, we're very focused now as a group on intellectual property rights management uh, and doing that with a technology-enabled approach. So, Does that mean fingerprinting, watermarks? Well, what it means is that the, the center of the wheel, if you want to take a hub-and-spoke analogy here, is fundamentally owning and controlling intellectual property rights. Uh, it's analogous to being like a real estate investment trust, right? We acquire apartment buildings or office buildings by analogy that are maybe at 60 or 70 percent occupancy Uh, we're really good at what we do so we get them up to 80 90 95 percent occupancy through our know-how and capabilities and realize a yield essentially on our investment and so the spokes around the acquisition of that ip are our different operating businesses that essentially monetize distribute retail exhibit monetize this ip and that's why there's a lot of synergy between having a, a music group like Sync and a music television network like Vita Primo. You know, it's the idea of what if Sony Music and MTV were under the same corporate umbrella back in the 90s, right? 
you know, and all of that uh, activity is also supported by our ad share business, which optimizes a lot of different enterprises, uh, YouTube rights, uh, including our own. That, again, by analogy, helps us get the occupancy rates up, helps us extract more value from the rights. We're very, very good at that. You know, and, and, and the backbone to all of this is our content bridge business and product, which is essentially the digital supply chain management piece, right? It, it both manages the content and orchestrates its distribution and monetization throughout the supply chain. So we're really well configured to essentially uh, feed more rights into the machine and grow and accrete the value that way, if yeah. that makes sense. How do you think about and go about content acquisition? Is it discovering emerging artists and helping them develop? Is it looking at older catalogs where you can you know, extract more value? It's a little bit of both. Our, our primary playbook is we go into, go, to go back to the real estate analogy, we go uh, into artists, labels, rights holders who already have built something, right? There's already a building on the land. And uh, maybe we're going to redevelop it. Maybe we're going to add to it. But there's already something there. That's been our predominant playbook. We take some risks on newer acts or, or rights holders that don't have a history. But that's sort of the um, the 20%, if you will. The 80% is, is working with people who have already demonstrated traction. I always explain, I did a roadshow uh, a year ago for a month in Latin America. On this roadshow was um, Tony Van Veen at Disc Makers. They own CD Baby, right? And uh, I absolutely love this guy. And we would we would go on stage one after another and talk to audiences at different conferences. We went to like six conferences in a row. And, you know, he would explain what CD Baby did. And there were lots of labels and musicians in the audience. And I would come on and explain what, what we did at the Go Digital companies. And the way I would set ourselves up to compare to, say, CD Baby was back to the life cycle analogy we started with. Every artist has a life cycle. And artists is a business. They have a life cycle, right? And... Every business needs different partners, different points in their development. So let's use a venture capital analogy. When you're a new business, maybe just the entrepreneur, maybe a few entrepreneurs, you have an idea, maybe not even a product yet, or maybe you have a product, but you don't know you have product market fit. You're really early. There's a certain set of investors that are going to do your series seed when you have an idea, maybe your series A when you have a product in the market. And then once you've demonstrated traction, right, and you understand things like total lifetime value of a customer versus the total cost to acquire the customer, and you understand the size of your market, right, now you're ready for growth capital. And that might be your series B or C and beyond. And then eventually, hope, you know, in most people's cases, they're hoping to be acquired to go public, right? So we kind of play in that series B, C space. That's our bread and butter. Somebody else, a CD baby, a tune where somebody's going to work with them, on their series C and series A. Once they've demonstrated traction in the market and they need to pour more gasoline on the fire, that's where we come in. We'll provide pretty substantial financial resources and expertise to really help them grow their market. And then at some point, you know, we lose, a f- we compete with the majors, right? We lose a few artists a year to the majors, um, you know, and, or, or occasionally, you know, these guys will want to move on, but we'll have an interest in the back catalog, right? So we, we kind of fit in between Sony, Universals, and Warners, and the peer service companies, if that makes sense. You mentioned that you travel all the time, spending a lot of time in Asia, Latin America. What are some of the foreign markets really demonstrating or poised for explosive growth this year? Well, anywhere where you've got leading indicators of large population growth, penetration of broadband internet and computing devices, 
and a maturing banking system is an ideal place to be looking for growth. Obviously, it depends on the segment. Esports and gaming is huge in certain areas of Asia and was huge there maybe before it was huge here, right? So there's, there's cultural differences. You know, again, we're very bullish on Latin America. I think there are, will be a lot of opportunities in developing markets in the Middle East. You know, Africa, I think, is probably last on the list, but will at some point drive a lot of growth. Asia has the population center. I think that China is very challenging. It's always been challenging. will continue to be challenging. But there's a lot of people in countries like Indonesia. Japan's very insular, but it's, you know, it's a mature market with a lot of uh, customers that are ready, willing, and able to pay for content. Uh, so we're a global company, right? We're in 16 different countries. And we're that way for a reason, because we see that it's a global business. And there's going to be a lot of growth outside the U.S., I remember the days when the box office for theatrical movies was entirely U.S. Mm -hmm. It was like 80% U.S., 20% foreign. And then home entertainment, and that has totally flipped, right? So I think you have to be a global business these days. People ask us about that as well. We've got three primary offices, one here in L.A., obviously, but also Europe and and Poland and and, uh, Vietnam for Southeast Asia. And for us, there's no alternative, right? Mm -hmm. It's a global business. We think about this Mm -hmm. business globally. We have customers across five continents, dozens and dozens of countries. And so we want to be where those trends are converging, where this is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is happening. I mean, if you asked me two, three years ago, it was Brazil, it was Turkey, it's Vietnam, and it's continuing to be the case. But this year it's Indonesia. It's a lot of parts of Latin America. It's going to be the Middle East in regions like Iran that have massive population. You're seeing infrastructure come in and monetization mm-hmm. potential now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think government regulation is a critical piece here too, right? I mean, China's not really on the map because of the way the government treats the internet. Although you see Tencent and Alibaba paying large advances for content. Uh, We haven't done any meaningful content licensing deals because every time we've done that, we never get accounted to. But uh, (laughs) Hopefully that's changing too. Alibaba is working on introducing more of a culture of transparency into China. Yeah, which is great. You know, I I think it's all all positive. It it really is. Uh, We're extremely bullish on the industry generally with the streaming paradigm across the board. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be painful. There will be new players introduced, some people disintermediated, but I think ultimately it's going to drive a lot of growth. We're already seeing that in the music industry. The television industry will be next, right, as it resegments, and it's a much larger business. But once we make it through and come out the other side, I think that uh, it's going to be a very robust business. Yeah. So thinking ahead, what are some of your predictions? If you were to offer you know, three things that you think are going to happen this year, three to five years out, what do you think is coming? I think globally, everyone's going to acquire a music subscription. You know, if you do the basic math, and actually I didn't invent this. I got this from Arnaud de Poifontaine, the CEO of Avendi. We'll have 5 billion people with smartphones in their pockets by 2020. And something like 68% global 4G LTE penetration. So pick your adoption curve and do the math. There's a lot of money in content streaming. So my number one prediction is that we're going to see a continued growth in streaming because the leading indicators are there. My number two prediction is the outcome of internet neutrality will determine the business structures and business models that are in place long term. And that's an extremely complex area. And there'll be a lot of shifting of 
you know, who's paying and where the economic rent is extracted uh, based on those rules and regulations. And I don't have a particular forecast for how that's going to sit uh, long term. I think the third piece is uh, content owners are going to work to close the value gap between what they get for a stream on an ad-supported basis and what they get for a stream on a paid basis. And we will find an equilibrium in the industry between those on the retail side and those on the content ownership or distribution side. And it will properly reflect the risks and rewards that each party are taking. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? As you look at the landscape, what do you think? You know, I think it's actually a tough time to just be starting out. I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the space, right? Big guys buying big guys. And it's because you, you know, in an internet economy, an unregulated internet economy, or largely unregulated, right? We have access to perfect information. What perfect information leads to is perfect competition, which is price competition, which leads to one or maybe two winners in any given category. I mean, look at what Amazon's doing to retail. I know some of the holiday numbers were positive, but generally speaking, they are eating physical retailers alive, especially in consumer mind share. So where you used to have this geographic buying density and you could have a blockbuster or a warehouse or Walmart or Target in an area and you had enough consumers around there to use the store and make it profitable. Now it doesn't matter. Now they're shipping to you anywhere that there's no need for geographic buying density. And I think that that's challenging. I think that we're going to see one or two winners in any given category. It is a winner take all game. And so getting into the game now, unless you've got serious backing is challenging. I've seen a lot of predictions that niche players are going to fall away or have to roll up. And I, and I, th I think there's some truth to that. I think that, in a, again, in a perfect information, perfect competition environment, it's a winner-take-all game. So you'd better be ready to compete sure. with the biggest guy on the block. And I think we naturally go through cycles in media where we have consolidation and you know, it expands and contracts, expands and contracts. So on the one hand, while traditional Hollywood is you know, gobbling each other up, right? right. The Disney Fox acquisition, there's a lot of synergies there. We see an explosion in digital publishers, right? The traditional publisher model right. didn't work. Web 1.0 can't figure out how to get to, to video. And yet all of these guys, Young Turks, Cheddar, Futurism, they're figuring out how to reach consumers video first in a really engaging way. Same thing with podcasts, right? It's reinventing radio on demand. And there are going to be an explosion of certain targeted broadcasts of information that people are really interested in. If you can reach the customer and own the customer relationship, that is the strongest position to be in. If you don't own the customer relationship, if it's through another platform, Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, whoever, you name it, right? You are not in a position of power. You don't actually own the customer relationship. So those who are not the mega conglomerates who will thrive are those who have very strong bonds direct with their customers. And that requires delivering a strong and unique value proposition. And you name some guys who have done that really well, but I would also postulate they don't own all their customer relationships. They're using third-party platforms and distribution to reach those customers, sure. which puts them at risk. You know, what happens when their predominant platform distribution decides to do business differently? They just have to deal with it. Yeah. That's what I think the YouTuber class, the online influencers are figuring out. Well, I don't really own my subscriber or my follower. It's YouTube, it's Facebook. And so they're trying to find ways to get closer to the fans. Right. 
And there are more platforms that offer that opportunity, like Patreon, but you're still, you know, it's facilitated through Same the middle. So how can yeah. influencers, how can creators find that direct to fan engagement path? It's not dissimilar to the way recording artists have done it for a long time, right? Recording artists have been less susceptible to disruption in this way because they have a 360-degree business that involves not just recording songs, but, you know, writing songs, uh, performing live, selling merchandise, endorsements, all these other revenue streams and ways of engaging their audience. That's what I think everybody needs to do. They need to, and, and fans for artists, by the way, are very loyal. They love an artist, right? They're willing to give their weekend to an artist and spend a lot of money to go see them play, right? That's the kind of relationship that non-recording artist type content creators, I think, should aspire to is that level of customer and, and audience connection. And those that do that, I think, will be very successful and will thrive. But everybody should be cognizant of the risks of not owning the customer relationship. As a small guy or smaller guy, that's a very material risk. Well, Jason, this has been incredible. I've gotten more of an education in the past hour than maybe the past year. I feel like you should teach a course on this. I don't know about that. I think I've learned a few things from you too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been amazing. And thanks again for sharing not only your perspective on this space, but you know, your experience and and your, uh, your story. It's, it's incredible. So thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of all things video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.